What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. Hello, I'm Jolyon Rubinstein, professional idiot, podcast host, and allegedly a satirist. And I'm podcast sidekick and investigative journalist on the side, James Ball, and you're listening to The New Conspiracist. This is a podcast that boldly goes where most people know better than to tread. Each week, we take one specific conspiracy theory and a fantastic guest, and we dissect it. What's the conspiracy? Who's behind it? What's the evidence for it? And why do people believe in it? And then we settle, once and for all, whether it's fact or fake news. So if you want answers on 9-11 or the Loch Ness Monster, on Benghazi, or whether Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by her body double and future podcast guest, Melissa, you're in the right place. So this week, we're joined by Agnes Frimstone, who used to work at Chatham House. What is Chatham House? Well, you may have heard of Chatham House Rules. Shh, don't tell anyone about it. Which is the idea that anything shared within this room cannot possibly leave the door, which is a fantastic place to start on conspiracies. Now, Agnes is a foreign affairs specialist and we've got a first for the podcast because usually we're talking about conspiracy theories that are everywhere and what they're about but in this episode we're going to look at a certain area where there is an ominous lack of conspiracy theories so james what are we looking at this week america and the world is full of conspiracy theories about whether the moon landings were faked but what we're asking this week is why are there so few conspiracies about Soviet cosmonauts? Let's jump right in. Agnes, how are you? I'm very well. <laughs> I'm very excited to be here. So this is this is a slight departure for the podcast. It's uh, it's a new one. We are possibly even coming up with a new conspiracy theory uh, but it ties in quite nicely to the episode which uh, kicked off this season with uh, Alex Gibney on the moon landings uh, good little callback if you haven't listened to that one yet but um, we've got Agnes on to talk about um, sort of some of the Soviet space program and in Soviet Russia everything's a conspiracy theory um you know the, you name it there are conspiracies around it and this is perhaps not to be you know that shouldn't be a surprising fact in a sort of country or network of countries that were run as dictatorships where people could disappear or be killed where propaganda was a daily fact of life you know conspiracies as agnes will tell us sort of spanned everything in life there and yet you know, for the space program, there's basically no Russian equivalent to sort of did we land on the moon or not? There's not really a sort of Soviet era, era set of conspiracies questioning whether or not they went to space or whether something was covered up about They really that. aren't, isn't there? It's really weird when you actually, because as soon as we started talking about this topic, I thought, my God, that's so bizarre because obviously, you know, everyone knows about Sputnik and, you know, I've definitely heard some conspiracy theories that, you know, the Soviets were somehow involved in the Nazis getting to the dark side of the moon which obviously is true, by the way, 
obviously. Um, you, you'd be the right. there, right? Yeah, exactly. But there is there is a huge, huge hole, isn't there, in popular consciousness? And Agnes, why, why is this? Why are there so few? Big question there. <laughs> Easy answer. Um, so I should start this obviously by saying I'm not an, I'm not the expert on Soviet space, but I just find it so fascinating that there's this huge conspiracy in the West. You know, I've, as you guys know, conspiracy experts now around the moon landing. And there is such a lack of that in the USSR and the Soviet Union and, you know, modern Russia today. Um, so I think it's for two main reasons. One is the actual, <laughs> the fact that the Russians did so, I mean, they were the, the first at everything, basically, when it comes to the space race. You know, first intercontinental ballistic missile, first satellite, first animal in space. Go on, guys. Can you name her? Uh, this uh, this was Laika, wasn't it? Yeah, dreamy Laika. Smashed it. Um, <laughs> smashed it. Do you know what? One of the things that I started thinking about when you started um, talking about why, and, and I'm certainly no expert in this area, but what was this sort of promulgation of popular cinema like? in the sort of 60s and 70s in Soviet in the Soviet era, because so much of the kind of moon landing conspiracies was sort of, I guess, really sort of predicated on the fact that in the West, filmmakers, notably Stanley Kubrick, obviously, had the ability technologically to make this mirage a reality. Do you think that's mm -hmm. part of the reason why it was so lacking? Or am I just totally lacking in the lexicon of, you know, uh, late Soviet era cinema? No, that's a really interesting question. Because I don't know the answer to that, I'm going to answer a different question. Let's watch um, <laughs> no, but I think I think you're, you're sort of onto something slightly in that... Um, I think the thing that we can't really comprehend um, from a Western perspective was the importance and the figurehead that Soviet pilots had. Um, so you have to remember that most space, most sort of spacemen, cosmonauts, started off as as pilots. And um, let's stay with spacemen. I prefer it. It's a bit Bowie-like. I like it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Or space women. Again, Russians' first woman in space two years after first man in space. Wow! Um, I didn't but, know that. Yeah, um, Valentina Tereshkova. Again, I'm going to apologise in advance to all the Russians listening for my terrible Russian pronunciation. Yeah, who was the first yeah. guy? Was it, was it Yuri Gagarin? Or am I totally Gagarin? It was in 1961. Um, yes. And how, I'm going to. How long was it until the first American woman in space? They they were quite a long way behind on that. Weren't I think they? A, yeah, a huge a huge distance. And Gagarin is so interesting because he comes from this um, sort of history of Russian fighter pilots. So there is this very famous pilot called um, Chukolov, who uh, he was the first person to fly from Moscow to the US in 1937. He became this enormous Soviet hero. He was sort of described as the son of Stalin. Um, and he sort of represented the greatness of the Soviet man. Um, Gagarin, who only began flying solo in 1957, he almost didn't get into the uh, Russian um, Air Force. He joined, he was only accepted into the space program in 1959, and he was the first man in space in 1961. Wow, I mean, that's amazing. That's incredible. Wild. And you are talking about, I mean, have you guys seen Goodbye Lenin? I haven't. The amazing uh, yeah. Oh my God, Jolyon, it's an amazing movie. It's, okay, uh, you have I feel to watch like it. I should have seen it. Hang on a minute. Was this? This is about ten years ago, wasn't it? Is that the movie where he's where he's trying to convince his mum East Germany hasn't fallen? 
Yes, yeah, you have. Okay. Well, do you remember how the German cosmonaut is such, a, as a, in his childhood, is such a hero? Yeah, yeah. And then he finds out that he's driving a, a taxi in the DDR after. <laughs> but, um, you know, Russian, in the same way, I think now that um, footballers and um, musicians have this such status in society, if you're a young Soviet boy, growing up on a farm or in a, you know, parents were factory workers, you could be plucked out of obscurity and become one of the most famous men in the world, as Gagarin was, just by being a good pilot. So they were the sort of heroes in that sense. Um, and there wasn't, that. they were also the sort of people that I think the public united around. It was, you know, boy done good. <laughs> um, I was, was going to say, it sounds like they're almost playing a kind of comic book role in uh, culture, you know. They're, they're sort of like they're, you know, Superman type figure, and the and the Soviets used them in propaganda, um, you know, and pushed them to the forefront. So, but uh, so the other thing about this list of firsts for the Russians is that they didn't have to make it up because they were first. If you think about the moon landing, it was the only thing that won the space war for the U for the US because everything else the Russians had beat them to. So I'm, I, just, I just want to, while, while, while we're on the first, jump back because uh, I did a little bit of frantic Googling while we were there. So, um, and uh, when it comes to Valentina Tereshkova, she was 20 years ahead of Sally Ride, who was the first American in space. Like, a full 20 years is absolutely amazing. Um, and also, apparently, she's the, still now the only woman ever to do a solo space mission. And that was only two years after they sent Gagarin. You know, you can say many things for the USSR, but uh, in they pushed women as much as they pushed men <laughs> um, often. So, but you couldn't even name her. But you know, she is not famous in the West. So, I mean, she she is now part of uh, she is now a part of Vladimir Putin's uh, political party. Um, well, but mean, you know, he, if we brush over that bit, um, you know, she she was a major general in the air force. Well done, her. Yeah, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. It is extraordinary, actually, that we we don't have any sort of popular cultural moment around that, isn't it? The first woman in space. Like yeah. I mean, I, I you're right. I've, I've to be completely honest, as a lapsed feminist, clearly in this moment, I hadn't even thought about it. You know, I mean, it's like it's quite an extraordinary omission from the historical record. I think I'd always assumed it was Sally Ride. Yeah, I think I had as well. Have we had a British woman in space? Yes, we yes, have. We have. I don't know her name, but we have. Apologies I mean, if you're listening. By the way, you're <laughs> welcome on the podcast to tell us, you know, that you're that you were fake that you faked it. And it was all <laughs> yeah, the sound. Yeah, I was going to say that you know we're just part of the matrix and we're plugged in. So sorry, Agnes, you're about to say something about uh, Terence <laughs> Cobra. No, but when you <laughs> but when you look at the Western women in space, I mean, one of the reasons it took so long for Sally Field to go up is because they claimed they couldn't, they didn't have the right size space. Did you just say Sally Field? Because <laughs> if she. Was <laughs> oh my god she's in my head obviously <laughs> but you know and we've seen this recently with the astonishing i don't know if you guys saw the amazing story around nasa and uh tampon yes, yes. that was um, amazing yeah. tell people who don't know phenomenal <laughs> really you don't want to tell this story yeah, you, um, we, we're generous to our guests on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> um, so um basically nasa were unsure about what to provide for sally ride for her one week in space um so they gave her a hundred tampons um 
which implies they have never spoken to a woman on that Google. Is um, that is I mean, so it, it also yeah. it suggests that it didn't occur to them to ask her, which is sort of yeah. amazing, really, isn't it? Like that's not a long conversation. No, it's not a long conversation and shows that there were no women in in positions of power yeah. at that point. Because I think one of them might have said, if she needs 100 tampons for a week, <laughs> we can't send her into space. She is very I mean, ill. That's <laughs> 100 tampons, my goodness. I mean, yeah, I won't go into details, but that you, you've got it. If anybody is listening to this and is going through 100 tampons yeah, a mate. week, Please 100%. Let us know if this podcast has helped improve your medical situation. You know, we would love evidence that we had a positive impact on the world. (laughs) Yeah, don't trust NASA on this. Don't trust NASA. We all have questions that keep us up at night. The self-help industry tells us they have answers. As a journalist and a skeptic, I'm not so sure. So I've set out to talk to people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. I'm Catherine Rowland. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. On season one, we're diving deep into the portal of plant medicine and psychedelics. Listen to Seeking wherever you get your podcasts. Warning, this podcast contains juicy tales of a super dysfunctional family. Brothers betraying brothers, friends becoming enemies, and a mother trying her best to keep everything from falling apart. No, this isn't a reality TV rewatch. I'm Dan Jones, your host, and this is one of my all-time favorite true stories. Join me on a trip to the Middle Ages to meet history's most dangerous dynasty, the Plantagenets. This season, the plots are thicker, the ambitions greater, and the betrayals are even more devious in the epic saga of the family that shaped our world. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for, season two. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I wanted to sort of press you on one thing because you'd sort of wondered whether the reason that sort of the Russian Russians and Soviets didn't question uh, the sort of space race was that they did they weren't they were winning and so why would you question it? But of course, with the US, this was their first symbolic technological victory in this race that they'd lost for you know a decade or more, and that's kind of why everyone questioned it you know it was oh gosh here was this win that we needed so much and that kind of caused everyone to go so yeah what if it's dodgy a bit handy that they won that easily how come you know the the soviets just didn't have that similar well how come if we seem to be able to do to you know not only get manned space first but get all of these other hurdles too you know how come they never questioned whether it was being faked or being sped through? Well, so there was a space conspiracy, um, which is a bit more, I think, interesting than the moon landing. It's called the Lost Cosmonauts or Phantom Cosmonauts conspiracy theory that sort of came up around the time a little bit, but much later, which was actually that basically they'd been launching men into space before Gagarin and covered it up because those guys had died. Um, so, but this has sort of been sort of 
not it's not hugely popular in the same way. It's completely believable, isn't it? I mean, massively believable. I mean, and it comes around because um, there is this chap called Vladimir Lushin, who's um, again test pilot who um you know it had been it was announced the soviet union announced that he'd been in a really serious car crash which was three days before gagarin was launched and it was thought that this was a cover-up for him having been sent in up and uh the um the uh, rocket crashing on impact with the something in space you know like uh, there's a lot of cover-ups around failures But by and large, I think, I don't know, I was going to ask you guys this from how much you've been looking into this sort of topic. I, w- I wonder whether you've discovered that conspiracy theories tend to have stronger basis if they are coming from um, a position of not necessarily democracy, but a lack of like general fear. You said to me, you know, is it that the, the moon landings conspiracy could flourish because it could flourish in a society where you could say that sort of stuff and not necessarily get murdered? I, I think I think there's probably a weird, healthy middle spot uh, in that they seem to spread most and be most rife at times where people either have good reason to distrust their government a lot or just distrust Mm -hmm. them a lot anyway. Like, you know, if you are in a time of crisis and need to pull together and trust government, they seem to vanish off. But, Mm. you know, the 70s and the 60s were a huge sort of wave for them. But this was the era of Cointelpro. You know, you had a Rand-Contra at the end, end of it. You had in the middle sort of suppression of domestic protests and civil rights and all sorts of shady shit and so it's that middle zone where you feel like you can question stuff and be right but you're probably you know certainly if you're white or in a position of power not going to get killed for it that Mm. seems to be when they really explode except for the fact you know agnes as well i know you know Soviets had endless conspiracies, even if they were kind of muttered. You know, this was not a society known for credulous belief in its government, even if it wasn't allowed to express disagreement. Absolutely. But I think, um, and to quote another popular culture reference, you know, uh, The Death of Stalin. Mm great film you are which i think was so phenomenal because it allowed for that sort of underlying doubt and sarcasm and stuff while showing the actual terror that people were living amongst you know shostakovich for example lived with a packed bag in his hall for two years because and slept in the hall because he didn't want his wife to be woken when he came and was taken away you know if you are living in mid a reign of terror and also like you say if you're if the people at the top are pushing actual conspiracies, like the famous, you know, the doctor's plot yeah. in the early 50s. Go on, uh, go where, on tell um, us doctor's plots. Thank you. <laughs> so, okay, basically it was, um, uh, it was when there was this idea that there was a plot amongst predominantly Jewish doctors from Moscow um, uh, to assassinate Soviet leaders. So there is an argument that Stalin started this to try and get rid of um Beria, who was a very senior member of the Communist Party at the time, but Jewish doctors were rounded up. Beria as well. Yes, not a charmer. But Simon Russell Beale is really pretty fantastic as Beria. So, you know, if you get a little bit of love for him after the death of Stalin, you know, we'll forgive <laughs> I mean, only Simon Russell Beale could give that man an element of humanity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is where doctors were rounded up and, and you know, killed. Um, and equally, you have to remember that 
everything at that point, not everything, but a lot of things were being um, faked. So grain, har- you know, grain harvest factory um, outputs because the state wanted to show how strong mm. they were whilst Ukraine was starving. Um, and also the use of propaganda. People always think that propaganda is about forcing people to believe something specific. It's not. It's about creating an environment where people believe nothing. And so uh, conspiracies require, I think, the idea that you can believe in something, (laughs) even if it's a lie. Whereas if you're surrounded by fear and doubt, you are probably going to hold on to the idea of a young boy from the middle of nowhere being put into space. I think you've, I think you've touched on something like absolutely that is at the core of of the you know the, the the power of all conspiracy theories. That point that you you're you're making, which kind of nicely you know sort of splits in half, which is that you have to have the big lie, but you also have to have things to believe in. Uh, and and yeah. like you said, you know, ultimately they were kind of killing the space race. You know, I mean, they they were really mm-hmm. the you know the cultural leader. But the other thing, I guess, I mean, the two things, to be honest, Agnes, that we've discovered doing the podcast: the one, the Jews usually did it. So it's good to know that the doctor's theory comes back to the Jews. It's uh, I mean, they, they really never, ever seem to end up on a good side of a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. It never seems to be a conspiracy <laughs> that results in people doing something nice for the Jewish population yeah. in their town or, yeah. you know, they're, they're secretly doing good. It's always, always, like, you just know anytime there's a paranoid or awful conspiracy theory, at some point something really terrible is going yeah. to happen to Jewish people. Like, whatever the country, whatever the era, it's a real recurring theme. Something that I I, I also think has become you know, apparent in all of the subjects we've looked at during the podcast is that there's always a grain of truth. There's always something. And when you talk about the realities of trying, I mean, you look at now, you know, SpaceX and Virgin Galaxy and all these people, it's, it's not easy getting a rocket into space. You know, there are, there are constantly issues even now. So back then, this idea that test flights might have been going up with pilots and things gone terribly wrong, I mean, that feels like it could really sit at the heart of a lot of this. Yeah, and I think also it's about people want to believe certain things, don't they? Whether that's a conspiracy theory or whether that's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah. That, you know, you have to decide to have faith in something. And if you don't have faith in your state, you don't really have a religion or you're not allowed to. You don't have faith in the idea of being able to potentially revolutionize your life in different ways because it's very set by the state. You know, believing in the idea that you got there first in space is... I, is I think something that doesn't want to be destroyed, mm. partic- particularly, right. and also it's not doing any damage. I mean, one one thing that's quite interesting is like we've never we haven't found any evidence to suggest that the Soviet space program was anything other than exactly as it appears. You yeah. know, yeah, you know, if if there were additional launches, etc., that you know people died. They've not turned up in post post Soviet records, and lots lots of other misconduct has. And so there's this quite extraordinary thing where, as far as we can tell, you know, at the same time as having to sort of really really fake 
the statistics that they were keeping basic life going as normal, they managed these extraordinary achievements in space, which is such a stranger than fiction story. It makes me wonder, is space travel secretly really easy or something? Like, <laughs> almost wilded that they didn't have to fake this at all. Yeah, but then again, you could argue, you know, if you have a communist state where you have control over directing everybody's um, skill set. So if you can monopolize everybody who maybe would work in the private sector for a more armed company to focus entirely on getting into space, you probably could do quite well. Um, whereas, you know, in the West, it's, it is harder if the state doesn't have control <laughs> and pushing people into the direction that they want. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just find it quite interesting. But I also think, I think, as you said, it's about... To believe in a conspiracy, you have to actually believe, by and large, that there is a truth slightly either to the to next to it or more broadly, and that this is a one-off. And it is the thing that sort of was reminiscent of the Soviet era, and that perhaps Western people who aren't very familiar with Russia miss about some of its information operations and how it acts in the post-Soviet era. It is, as you say, getting people into the position where they believe nothing or they regard everything as some form of propaganda and either believe the one that's most convenient or that suits them. And sort of people look for, you know, was Russia... Did Russia want Brexit to happen? Did Russia back Trump? And ignore the fact that they'll also push, you know, in the UK, Russia misinformation pushes loads of anti-Muslim sentiment. It actually pushes stuff about donkey sanctuaries, if you look. Um, <laughs> it's, it's about whatever captures, isn't it? It's, get, it's trying to give more people that Russian mindset into the world, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's about context too. I mean, you know, how many... How many people were murdered under Stalin's Red yeah. Terror? You're probably going to be looking at that a little bit rather than whether or not somebody got to space. Whereas in the, you know, in the US, it's, there's a different levels, I think, slightly. There are. And I mean, in, uh, the thing about uh, particularly, I mean, I know, obviously, we're, we're focusing on space here, but I, I do want to sort of bring up, uh, you know, the, the, one of the arch propagandists, really, at the modern age, you know, Vladislav Surkov. The thing that Surkov did was try to basically turn Russian life into a sort of carnival of misinformation. And a good example of, of this sort of uh, public policy attitude, which was essentially to keep the public guessing as to what the true intentions of the regime were in order to sort of be shape-shifting, to make it almost impossible to formulate meaningful opposition against them, was do things like organize and help fund a, say, far-right rally, and at the same time put out press releases saying that they were also helping to fund and organize uh, the counter-rally that would take place to try and, you know, uh, speak against it. And it sort of feels like the modern sort of equivalent of you know, someone like Joseph Goebbels, someone who was who understood that there was a way to manipulate the public mind in a totally new way, utilizing technology, you know, utilizing. I mean, that's when you started having these incredible videos start pop up where Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's just decided to go for a little dive and you won't believe it, but he's found a pot from the uh, 1400s that, that shouldn't, he's just an absolute man genius. I mean, these, this is where this all came from, right, James? Um, I mean, I think he, he's carrying on a, a long and proud tradition. Um, you know, this it's not the first, it's not a Putin thing either. There's 
I mean, it really, you could say it's probably pre-Soviet. There's, there's, you know, there's always been autocratic government in Russia and in some countries that are sometimes dismissively called its satellites. Um, it's just that, you know, given the way that we're raised and the way that we're sort of led to expect a world that will react, you know, that wants objective news outlets and high quality and trusted institutions. It doesn't really suit our mindset at all. It's not what we're prepared for. And so we tend to want it to be a new invention or a bad man behind it. Well, I think it's a combination of those things as well. Like you say, it's about not relying for you know united opposition, but it's also you know it uses fear very successfully because you don't know what you can get in trouble for. Yeah, because you don't know what's right or what could get you um, you know murdered. Um, so it's that not having things to believe in, but also not knowing what not to do. And if you're functioning, I think as we all have been on a very low level during this pandemic, if you're functioning at a low level of anxiety the whole time, it affects the way that you believe in anything mm. um so and i mean and that made me think of i'm going to pronounce this wrong but you know the uh, dulles plan which is still the, the, the most famous sort of conspiracy theory in russia around the west mm. um you know this idea that the west is sort of trying to um corrupt russia this was john foster dulles right this was who worked for, for the u.s government Yes, but uh, but it actually originates from a work of a Russian work of fiction, 1971 novel called The Eternal Call by somebody called um, Anatoly Ivanov. Um, but it's this idea that the West are trying to, um, what's the quote, hammer into the people's consciousness the cult of sex, violence, sadism, and betrayal, mm. immorality. So you know, it's, and that is what Putin is currently playing on hugely. If you look at you know, the push for anti-LGBT rights, what's going on in Chechnya um, regarding the persecution of homosexuals. It's this idea mm. of creating an identity around the othering or be- being different from the West. And how can you show that you're different? It, currently, it's by objecting to things. It's by harking back to this old school form of sort of family morality. Mm. Um, but that is still one of the biggest conspiracy theories in Russia is that this is a Western push to try and like damage Russia through immorality. Just um, just slightly changing gears here, uh, uh, Agnes, because we're, we're rarely, uh, you know, blessed to have someone with your background on, on the podcast. <laughs> Speaking much more generally about the power that conspiracy theories seem to have now and very much sort of following on for the points that you were making of, you know, uh, the effects they have on societies. Why do you think that at this moment in time, they have become just so, so prominent in the public conversation? That's a really interesting question. Um, Well, I think it's a combination of things, obviously. I think, you know, people's access to information now is broader than it has been at any point in history. You know, you're not just reading one newspaper, you're not listening to one news channel. Um, And I think the thing about social media is that suddenly we are able to hear a lot more different people's points of views. And that is wonderful and democratizing and phenomenal but also um scary uh, because that is unedited i think it's people's fear and this idea that they want somebody to be in charge because otherwise life is terrifying even if that person in charge is 
malicious or malign. You know, this push that it's Bill Gates trying to insert a chip in you. Bill Gates doesn't care, but we want him to care because then it means somebody cares. <laughs> um, and I think it's also that people are often slightly off. I mean, this whole this whole conspiracy around the idea of there being the foreign policy establishment who want one thing. Mm. I think, I mean, I don't know if you guys have done an episode on the Iraq war, but the thing that I found really interesting from that period, in fact... We have I, not, but we should, shouldn't we, Joel? Yeah, yeah, that would be a really good one. Who could we get for that? <laughs> <laughs> this, well, this, uh, you, you may have uh, ignited an ongoing, uh, an ongoing scuffle. Well, one of the pieces I'm still most proud of commissioning, actually, for Chatham House, which is by a great writer called James Duval, which was on the anniversary of the sec- uh, First World War, was a piece on generals versus politicians. Because obviously in the First World War, you know, led by the uh, lions, led by donkeys. Mm. It was the generals who weren't blamed. Um, we were blamed rather, but it was the politicians who got it wrong. Whereas in the Iraq war, I mean, I think the conspiracy that people don't talk about is how much the army pushed for it because they were facing severe budget cuts. Totally. And very senior generals went to Tony Blair and said, oh, we should go in. But the conspiracy is that it was the dodgy do- dossier. And it's sort of cut the intelligence agencies cops the entirety of the blame. Exactly. When actually the military then could sit back and, you know, make sure that their budgets weren't slashed. You know, they should be held as, as accountable as politicians have been, but they, they haven't been. I think, I think you're really hitting on something so centrally important. Bizarrely, it sort of brings us back to the first. I, I have sort of in character gone to quite a few arms fairs um, yeah. and, you know, be they sort of edXL or um, oh, what's that crazy air show that happens every year? I can't even remember where it is now. Um it's extraordinary watching, you know, essentially British weapons being hawked all across yeah. the world. But what I didn't know was that arms companies are incredibly clever at, uh, and I actually only found this out when when I talked directly to campaign against the arms trade, at sort of segmenting their uh, industrial offerings so that certain factories are set up in multiple different constituencies so that to be able to say, you know, let's just say make a Rolls-Royce engine for the, for the mm-hmm. sake of argument, all those pieces are made in different uh, constituencies with different MPs who have then have the issue of, well, if you don't get in, we'll just close this up here, which means you have, you know, unionized workforces saying we don't want to lose 10,000 jobs in this constituency. And they have an unbelievable, uh, you know, control over, over policy. I think it's the only way you can make sense of the fact that Britain sells arms to eight out of the 10 countries who are our most uh, worried about on the human rights watch list. I mean, it's the only rational explanation. Just before we slip all the way into being foreign affairs for the podcast, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. uh, and given we've only got a couple of minutes coming, um, I do just want to drop in one of my favourite sort of Soviet and post-Soviet conspiracy theories uh, um, because I, I sort of not really encountered this, but um, have have either of you heard of the Soviet citizens movement? No, I haven't. What's no, this? but it sounds like quite a lot of other movements at the time. But I'm excited. So, so this one is is a group is a group that exists across multiple countries, um, but it's apparently very strong in uh, North Ossetia um, that believe. Um, because of a 1991 referendum, uh, the Soviet Union legally still exists and that 
everyone in in the said countries are still citizens of it. Amazing. Uh, and they've gone in a similar way to um, some Western conspiracy theories. They think that the Russian Federation is a private offshore company registered in Delaware <laughs> that is controlled by the US government and is illegally occupying Soviet territory. Amazing. And so they've organized parallel government institutions. Um, And so there's a retired uh, woman, uh, Valentina Renova, who commands uh, her own KGB finance and justice (laughs) ministries. And uh, they've got local organizations in most regions of Russia, and uh, she's got 51,000 YouTube followers. which I just think is, you know, if you think Goodbye Lenin was something, there are people still doing this in 2021. So, James, can you prove that it's not the case? Yeah, James. I can't. I mean, you know, legally. I, I would quite like the idea, though, that it turns out that the whole time that we thought Putin might be controlling Trump or messing <laughs> up the US election, it turns out he's actually been working for the US the whole time. Through South Who else is from Delaware? The Biden crime family. It's like the ultimate sort of, you know, end of the Scooby-Doo reveal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He pulls the mask back and it's Hunter Biden. Yeah, we've got to that part of the podcast where we're going to tell our audience once and for all if this conspiracy is a forgazy or if it is actually the real deal. So, James, what's the verdict? So, I, I've got to say, I, I do think the, the Soviets made it to space first. And, you know, shout out to Valentina Tereshkova, but not to her politics. <laughs> Agnes. Yeah, I mean, Gagarin forever, man. He's a hero. I absolutely think they got there. Um, uh, We were going to, first of all, thank our guests so much for coming on the podcast. Agnes, where can people find you online? Uh, They can find me on Twitter, at Agnes Grimm. Great. Okay. Uh, Well, listen, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. And I think we'll have to have you back on to discuss, you know, coltan mines in the Congo. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Love talking about space. Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, Listen, please, please, guys, do share, like and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, You know, it's not like I love saying it every time, but it massively helps the algorithm. And if you want a series three, God damn it. That's what you got to do. Uh, so it's goodbye from me, Jolly and Rubenstein. Uh, and goodbye from me, James Paul. Hold up. 